0: We can open up to the book of Romans. We are going to be in chapter 14 this evening. If you're with us for the first time, we've been going through uh, quite an extensive series in Romans. um, And we're nearing the end, but we've still got quite a bit to go through, some really exciting stuff. And uh, tonight is no different. Um, Chapter 14 is really one of my favorite chapters in in Romans, because I think it deals with such a prevalent issue within the church and something that I've also been deeply challenged on in my own life. But um, just, a, just, just a very general recap quickly. All right? The book of Romans, if you don't know, is really all about the gospel, where Paul unpacks what the gospel is and then he goes on to applying the gospel to our lives. So, how does the gospel work itself out in the life of the Christian? And he really starts that journey of application in chapter 12 and then he goes to chapter 13, and in chapter 14, we're still applying the gospel, and if you are here last week, you'll know we're sort of preaching this the way the guys who made Star Wars made those movies. It's like back to front, okay? It's like, let's start with the end and then move our way to the beginning, which doesn't make any sense to me, Um, but Brad had to bail me out last week because I tore some cartilage in my ribs, and so if I breathe funny tonight, that's because of that situation, but Brad Brad carried on um, from where he was so, supposed to after this message. So this is the prequel to what Brad shared last week. There's going to be some overlap, but we're still in the space where Paul is helping us to unpack the gospel in specific areas right, of our lives. And so um, what Paul does here, really, in, um, in chapter 14, is help us to deal with our convictions but that's that's what he helps us to deal with. It's all about how we handle certain convictions that we have as Christians and how we think about them, specifically and particularly when other Christians disagree with us or hold to different convictions, maybe on the same issue. For instance, think about these things for a moment. Don't share them out loud now, all right? Because then we'll get into a whole bunch of heated debate, I'm sure, all right? But Think about these things quickly. What do you feel about or what are your personal convictions with regards to alcohol and Christians? Can, can Christians drink? Shouldn't they drink? But what are your personal convictions about the Sabbath? In other words, is one day more holy than the next? Is one day more special than the next day? What about tattoos? Should Christians get tattoos or should they not get tattoos? How do you feel about that? What about the word Easter? Should we use the word Easter or should we speak about it as Crucifixion Friday and Resurrection Sunday? What about Christmas? Should you have a Christmas tree? Should you decorate Christmas tree? Or do you feel like that is in line with celebrating a pagan festival? How do you feel about that? What about how a pastor should be dressed in the pulpit? Hey, that's a contentious one. Like, should I be wearing a tie? Right? Hey? Eh? Should I be wearing a tie? Or Would you have been okay with me rocking up in a you know, Hawaiian t-shirt with my board shorts and some slops? Would you have been okay with that? Right? What are your convictions about that? What? Yeah. This is supposed to be serious, guys. Right? What about what, about, what, about what music what music's appropriate for Christians to listen to? Right? How loud it should be and what the lyrics, you know, um, whether, should they be audible or not, right? What about what instruments are okay to play in a church? And so on and so on. Yeah, we have the unauthorized tambourine that exists, all right? Every church has got that. But seriously, what are your, what are your convictions about this? And, and the reason why I ask is because every single one of us has convictions around certain issues, these and more. There are others, but we have convictions. And there's going to be times where our convictions don't match up with or are not the same as other Christians' convictions in this area. And so how do we deal with that? But this is a major issue. See, And it's a major issue for Paul because it has to do with the gospel and how the gospel is presented to the world. See, if we don't learn how to deal with this, we're going to be caught up in dealing with these things in a way we're not meant to, and it's going to cause animosity, separation, and fighting within the church that's ungodly. It can cause animosity, it can cause cause church splits and and people to separate from one another and even disfellowship with one another i was reading um a story it was absolutely ridiculous story but it's a true story of a church in the states right who split and took each other to court because they punched each other and they beat each other up do you know why they started fighting with each other i'll tell you the one group wanted a christmas tree in the church foyer and decorated during christmas the other group thought it was a bad idea and so the group who wanted the Christmas tree went and cut the Christmas tree down and brought it into the foyer, and the tree and the tree not wanting people were waiting in the foyer, and they dragged the tree back outside, and then the other group, I'm being dead serious, the other group went and grabbed the tree and pulled it back inside, and then the other group took it and pulled it, tried to, to bit it outside, and they caught each other halfway, they had a tug of war, and then when no one was winning, they punched each other. Right? And then they started suing each other, took each other to corners in the local newspaper. There are so many stories like that about stupid fights that Christians have been in. There's a church that has a ladder sitting on a, a, on a ledge. that The ladder's been there for 200 years. Why? Because the ledge belongs to one church that shares the building, and the windowsill that it leans on belongs to the other church, and no one wants to take it down because it's your job. No, no, it's your job. And it's become this famous ladder that's been there for 200 years, and it hasn't moved. Google it, I promise you. But this is... This is so on the heart of God to deal with because although it might seem funny to us and it is a little bit anecdotal, I mean it's a little bit funny, but the reality is the world laughs at us when we say, hey, come and visit us. We know Jesus. Our lives have been transformed. We worship and we are in fellowship with the living God, the God who created the heavens and the earth and then they walk in and we're punching each other because of the Christmas tree. It's a real serious problem. And so that's why Paul writes chapter 14. He goes, we have to avoid these divisions. So spoiler alert, the whole of chapter 14 is about don't divide over these issues. Don't, Don't disfellowship over these issues. Don't make these things bigger than what they need to be. And not only is it important because we're the family of God and we're brothers and sisters and God desires unity for his people, love and unity, but also we are an example of Jesus to a watching world. We can get caught up in so much nonsense. Jesus said in John chapter 13, 35, he says, by this all men will know that you are my disciples, by the way that you love one another. By the way that you love one another. If we fight and divide over minor issues, although we think they're big, but they're really not, we're just gonna be destroying the testimony of Christ to a world that's watching us. That's what's going to happen so as we start to read what i typically do is just read through the whole passage but for time's sake we're going to read and go and read and go and unpack but it's important to understand before we do that the thought process of paul as this is happening the thought process of romans when you read the bible it's always good to understand the thought process of a book and how it fits in and and initially it might seem a little bit weird that paul moves into this section after he's done what he's done in chapter 12 and, and chapter 13 but it actually flows perfectly Paul starts with it going. Hey, this is how you live the this, this this is how you live the gospel out. And then he moves into chapter thirteen. Still the same thing. And he ends with chapter thirteen with this thought. Now, in light of all of this, put on Jesus. Put on Jesus. Run hard after Jesus. And as you come to know Jesus, you'll know that's an amazing thing to do. But here's what starts to happen: as soon as you do that, if you've been in this place before, if you, if you know Jesus, there was a time in your life where he overwhelmed you, and you had that first love experience, and you started to just strip stuff off of your life. You're like, I don't want this anymore. 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 If I'm going to run hard after Jesus, I'm going to take all of this stuff off, and that's great, but then you come to church, and you realize, hang on, this Christian over there got that stuff in my life that I've stripped off a long time ago, or that I've just recently got rid of. And I don't really see eye to eye with them because I don't think that that should be in my life, but they're embracing it, and I'm a little bit uncomfortable with that. So Paul moves from put on Jesus to, now about your convictions. Let's just, let's just deal with this quickly. And so it flows quite perfectly into chapter 14, 12, 13, and then into 14, not just numerically, but thought process-wise as well. So how do we deal with this issue? Here's what Paul says. He says in verse uh, verse 1 of chapter 14, Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. Accept the weak brother or sister in the faith and just don't quarrel about disputable matters. Now, I wanted to just start off with what Paul is not saying here. What Paul is not saying is that Christians are, are supposed to ignore and look over serious doctrinal and sin issues. That's not what Paul is saying here. He's not saying that the core doctrinal truths of our faith are things we shouldn't dispute over and disfellowship over. No, we should dispute those things, and we should disfellowship when necessary, especially when it comes to core doctrinal issues or overt sin issues. And I would refer to those issues that are core to our faith as closed-handed issues. We call them closed-handed issues. They're those things that affect what the gospel is. And if you get it wrong, you move into heresy, you twist the gospel, and your salvation is at stake. In fact, if you twist it in such a way um, that takes it outside of God's word and outside of how God's word explains the Bible, you're in heresy and you're probably not saved. For example, some of the things would be the deity of Christ, the godness of Christ, the fact that He is both God and man. The, the virgin birth would be one of those core doctrinal issues. The humanity of Christ, the death and resurrection of Christ, the Trinity. The fact that when God calls something sinful, it's sinful. Those are closed-handed issues. We don't debate those things. There should be absolute agreement on those things. Those are closed-handed issues. We don't touch them. Get any of those wrong and you're in dangerous territory. Paul's not saying don't argue about those things. Doctrinal differences and clear scriptural teaching on what is sinful are not doubtful things. They're not disputable things. Scripture is absolutely clear about those issues and absolutely clear that we should be fighting over those things when necessary because they're core to the faith. So this is what he does mean by disputable things, right? This is what Paul means. He's talking about those issues where the Bible is silent that's so what he's talking about. He's talking about those issues where the Bible is silent, and the thing that we're talking about isn't necessarily a salvific issue, in the sense that no matter what you believe about this, it's not going to hinder whether you're saved or not, and it's not a sin issue. Right? The Bible's either it speaks into this and says it's not a sin issue, yet you still feel like you don't want to engage in it, or... It's not clear and it doesn't say anything about it and you make a decision on it anyway. That's what he's speaking about when he speaks about these disputable matters. Let's call them open-handed issues. That's what he speaks about, regardless of what you believe about them. An, an example of that is the end times. I don't want to ask people to put up their hands because the room will be divided, okay? And maybe do it after the message so you can handle it properly. But who believes in the rapture? Some people put up their hands, yeah, I believe in the rapture. Who believes that the rapture is not going to happen, that when Jesus comes, that's it? It doesn't matter. Premillennial dispensationalists, we come with these huge words. A-millennial dispensationalists, doesn't matter. We're like, I'm Amillennial dispensationalists does not matter we like i am a pan millennial dispensationalist. We're always going to pan out in the end. You know, like, it doesn't matter what you believe about the end times. It's important. I don't want to water it down. It's important that you develop a theology there. But, but we're not going to punch each other over this thing because my brother or my sister who believes in the rapture and my brother and the sister who who may not believe in the rapture, still love the Lord Jesus Christ. It's an open-handed issue. So in other words, open-handed issues or disputable issues are those issues that we are at liberty to make our own decisions on based on the wisdom and godly principles we get out of other texts in the Bible. Or... That we've come to a conviction on based on our own conscience, but that is not opposed to what God has already said is sinful. And read that again. Disputable issues, open-handed issues, are those issues that we're at liberty to make our own decision on. Right, based on other godly principles and wisdom we get from other Scripture, or that we make a decision on based on our conscience. Right? as long as it doesn't oppose what God has already set up and established as sinful. But that's, that's an open-handed issue. Now, the last statement, the person who makes a decision based on their conscience, regardless of what the Bible says about it on an issue, is what Paul refers to as the weaker brother or sister. You may have been wondering what he meant by that. Here's what he means. A person who is weak in the faith is someone who believes and is convicted That something is wrong when it in fact isn't wrong. That's what Paul means by the weaker brother or sister. In other words, a believer whose convictions are stricter than is necessary. That's what Paul means by the weaker brother or sister. That's what he means by weak in the faith. But what Paul doesn't mean is that this person doesn't love Jesus and doesn't have a faith. What Paul doesn't mean is that this person doesn't necessarily have a strong faith in Jesus... What he's pointing out and what he's referring to is that in a specific area, this brother or sister is weak in the faith because their conscience won't allow them to do something that actually the Bible permits you to do. But that's what he's referring to when he speaks about a weaker believer or brother or sister who's weak in the faith. But when it comes to, when it comes to the weaker brother or sister, they are conscience-bound to not do something. Although scripture might clearly teach that it's okay. The thing that they're not wanting to do is not inherently sinful, but yet they feel like they can't do it. Three examples are given in the text. Paul says, hey, meat. Eat meat. Don't eat meat. but right, it's okay. But the weaker brother is the brother who's going to go, whoa, I'm not going to touch that meat. And the reason why that was happening, Brad might have touched on this last week, is because... A lot of the meat that you find in the meat markets back in those days, back in these times, was sacrificed to idols. And so you got the Jewish believers who were now hanging out with the Gentile believers, and they would all rock up and go for like a church outing to the meat market. And the Gentile believers were like, "Oh, give me some steak, you know? I cut off the horns hit it with a hot pan, and I'm happy, you know." And and then and then you got the Jewish guys going, "This is not kosher. That, that's that's pork. No, that was sacrificed to idols." And you got them going, whoa, and the, and, then, and the Gentile believers going, no, brother, all things are clean. And you had this dispute happening, so it was over meat, it was over sacred days. You know, the Jewish people were given the Sabbath, and they believed that that was more holy than any other day. And you got the Gentile believers who are coming from more like, what's the Sabbath? How does that all work? I just know Jesus, you know, all days are the same. There's no one special day. And there's also alcohol, you know, just like you can imagine the partying and the drinking and the on that happened back in those days like it does today. And some guys going, no, this is just terrible. We're not going to do this. And other guys go, no, oh, it's really not an issue. God's word says, don't get drunk. All right? So those are the type of things that, that were going on. And there's, there's so many different examples that you can give. I mean, a contemporary version for us would be someone who doesn't want to eat meat could not eat meat because they're convicted that this, this is how ho And I just, I, just, I just can't bring myself to do this. Or because of the way animals are treated. I just, I just don't feel like before the Lord I can do this thing because of the way animals are treated. And, and that's just my conviction on this thing. I know as I've mentioned some of those things, it's going to bother some people. Right? It bothered me when I read this, and it bothered me to find out that I was weak in the faith in some areas. And I still am. I've worked through some stuff, but I am still weak in the faith in some areas. And, and one of those things is the area of uh, tattoos. But I'll explain that to you just now. I'll leave you hanging for a moment. <clears throat> but here's what Paul's saying with this thing. It doesn't matter what your conviction is on this thing. In fact, you shouldn't even try to change. It's okay if your conscience won't allow you to do something that another brother or sister is doing, as long as it's not an inherently sinful thing. It's okay. The fact is, you you shouldn't try and change. That's part of the teaching. It's all right for you to be like that. There's nothing wrong with your convictions, and there's nothing wrong with you. You just need to call it for what it is, acknowledge it for what it is, and be okay with that. So, me and the tattoo issue, right? I have always wanted a tattoo. a like a freaking cool one, and you can ask my wife, I've sat and I've designed all sorts of tattoos, my wife has a tattoo, right, I've always wanted one, but I just can't bring myself to do it, because something in me just feels like, what happens if God's upset with me about this thing, right, and you can't convince me scripturally that it's wrong, You know, that scripture, that scripture in the Old Testament says, do not cut yourself or tattoo yourself in remembrance of the dead, is not speaking about not getting tattoos. Maybe the reason why you get a tattoo might be wrong, but tattoos in and of themselves are not inherently sinful. But I still can't do it, right? And I'm weak in the faith in that area, and that's okay. But I've also come full circle in the sense that, I understand the teaching of Scripture on that. And so, hey, if you want to get a tattoo, I'll drive with you to the parlor and I'll wish that I was you getting a tattoo, all right? <laughs> I'll, I'll even help you design a tattoo, Right? right? I'll, I'll even help you. Do, I, have no, I have no issue with a tattoo. I have no problem with a tattoo. You can have one. That's awesome. I will, you know, be green with envy and all that sort of stuff and just know that I'm never going to get one until my conscience changes. But I'm not going to try and change it. It, it. it just is what it is. The other part of getting a tattoo is because I know that I minister to people and and I know that if there's 100 people in the room and 30 people disagree with them and 70% do, as soon as I raise my arms, if someone sees that there's a tattoo, I lose the 30%. Right? People who've got tattoos don't care that I don't have one. People who don't have them will care if I have one. And so there's a part of this that's a maturity thing for me too where I realize, hey, actually, and we'll get to this later, I don't want to cause my brother or sister to stumble. That doesn't mean if you've got a tattoo you haven't thought about people. Uh, that's that's not what I'm saying. That's you selfish and insensitive. So don't 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 misread me here. I, I'm saying the main reason, the the primary reason why I'm not getting one and I've never got one is because I'm just weak in the faith in that area. I just I, God's going to be upset with me. That's just what my conscience does. So Paul says this. He says this. Hey, accept those who are weaker in the faith. Accept them. Right? Don't, don't make a thing about it. There's so many things. There's lots of things to make things about. Don't make a thing about this. This is not a big thing. And here's how you do it. it says in verse 2, one person's faith allows him to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. In other words, remember this, both of you are right. Your faith leads you to be free and eat. Your faith leads you to a place where you can't. God's not saying the weaker is wrong and the stronger is right. God's not saying that he's upset with the weaker and, uh, and more pleased with the stronger. He's just saying both of you are led by your faith in this thing. You're both right. So stop it with one another. Don't make it a bigger thing than it needs to be. If my faith is strong and I can eat meat, rock on. Thank you, Jesus. Right? Meat's meat and a Christian must eat. You're just like, come on. You know? give me some give me some garlic butter sauce. Put it on there, right? Every single holiday, I go to the Eastern Cape and Junji, I go hunting and I come back and I've got a deep freeze full of meat. So I'm like, thank you, Jesus. But if you can't eat meat, that's okay. Guess what? You shouldn't eat meat. God is pleased with you. He accepts the strong, he accepts the weak. This isn't a judgment or indictment on your character. This is just simply what it is. Right. God accepts you, regardless of your convictions on open-handed issues. That's what Paul's getting at. But there's also a warning that he brings, and we want to try and change each other all the time. Right? We want to change each other, and so Paul knows this, so he gives us warning because there's a dark side to each of your convictions and to each of those um, those different camps. Says this the one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. See, the danger for the strong Christian is that you look at your weaker brother or sister and you patronize them, and you try and change them, and you look at them with disdain and disrespect. Ah, man, not free, they don't know their Christian liberty, they're not fully living in grace, right? And then what happens is you can err on the side of being too liberal. You can, you can eventually get to a place where you become an abuser of your Christian liberty. That's, that's the danger for the strong. Then for the weak, he says, don't judge your stronger brother. Because for the weak, you, you tend to sit back and look and go, oh, I'm more holy than you. I'm more righteous than you. God's more pleased with me. You're stepping way out of your limits there, buddy. You, you're really pushing the boundaries. I, I'm a whole lot better than you because I don't do the stuff that you do. And you can become incredibly judgmental and legalistic. That's what Paul's saying. Don't, don't, don't look down and don't judge. The weaker don't judge, the stronger don't look down on each other. Accept one another and work it out. Work it out in love and protect unity. So Paul is saying, imagine two guys, like I said, going going to a market. Right? We go down to the Musenberg market. And let's just say, I don't eat meat, and James does. Right? And we head there and James is like, hey, I'm hungry, come, let's go get come, let's go get like a meat skewer. And I'm like, No ways, brother. Don't don't you know your sanctity in Jesus? That stuff's been sacrificed and to who knows what and it's hull and all this sort of stuff. No ways. There's all sorts of demons there, you know? Like you're not going to eat that meat. And then James goes, Oh no, brother, you don't know your liberty in Christ. You, you just you don't know that. You don't know your freedom in Christ. And then we start to have this like debate, and then you know what happens. After church, you've got the meat eaters and the non-meat eaters. And they all hang out together. And the meat eaters don't want to be around the non-meat eaters because it's just uncomfortable. Right? You don't you don't eat meat, and so I'm just I'm not gonna to want to change, right? Because I think it's dumb that you don't eat meat for whatever reason, and so I'm not gonna hang out with you. And then the non-meat eaters are like yeah, we don't want to hang out with them. And it goes vice versa for those who drink wine and those who don't drink wine. Those who got tattoos and those who, those, who, those who do have tattoos. Those who want to call things Easter or call their time Easter or those who don't want to celebrate Christmas. And it just happens like that. And we end up having subsects within subsects within the church and we don't mix together. And God's going, we need to avoid that. We need to avoid that nonsense. The second way to avoid making an issue out of our differing opinions is to remember that you don't have the right to judge somebody. Right? You don't have the right to judge somebody in these open-handed issues. Here's what Paul says. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, a servant stands or falls. And they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. You see, he's not speaking about an overt sin issue here. Right? And if a person is committing adultery... If a person is lying or stealing or watching pornography, is that an open-handed issue? No. Right? It's not an open-handed issue. We engage them. There needs to be rebuked. There needs to be challenged. And in some ways, we judge. We go, that's ungodly. Paul's not speaking about not judging people when it comes to closed-handed issues. But what he is saying is that in those areas that are truly a Christian liberty issue, that's between them and the Lord. Don't pretend to be their mediator. There's only one mediator between God and man. That's Jesus Christ. They are ultimately responsible to the Lord for their decision. And if you have a problem with their conviction, try and just leave it to Jesus. Jesus will sort it out when and if he has to sort it out. So Paul's saying here, just leave it. You don't have the right to judge somebody on an open-handed issue. As soon as you start to judge and as soon as you start to condemn, you start to create animosity and disunity and there's a greater thing at stake here than your conviction and changing somebody to believe what you believe. Right? The third way to handle opposing convictions and avoid unnecessary disputes is to remember that both the weak and the strong in this particular instance are doing what they do unto the Lord. That's what Paul says. One person considers one day more sacred than the other. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind, whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. In other words, your convictions are not more righteous, are not more holy, are not more godly, are not more free than the next persons. God's not more upset with them than He is with you, because the person whose conviction doesn't allow them to eat meat is not doing that unto the Lord. A person who doesn't drink, let's use wine, for example. It's a similar situation to what I've been on. Similar road that I've been on. It was once a stage where I was like, God, I cannot take any alcohol because of the past that I've experienced and the damage that I've seen it cause. I can't do this. And Lord, for the glory of your name, I'm gonna stay away from this stuff. I just cannot consciously bring myself to do this. then, God, God, let that be for your glory. Use that for your glory. And there have been people who are weak in the faith in that area who've blessed me. One of the men who led me to the Lord, who was instrumental in in showing me the heart of the Father and who Jesus is, was a man who just absolutely believes he shouldn't be drinking. And let me tell you what, if I had gone to his home, if I would spent time on that farm and I would seen him pick up a beer and drink a beer after the history that I have had in the family situation that I come out of, I would have been put off. I'm telling you, I would have been put off. But he didn't. And it blessed me. If I had to see him now, it would be a totally different story, but then was was really important to me because I was weak and I was young in the faith. And then I've seen brothers and sisters on the other side of the spectrum who are strong in the faith. And I was so used to people getting drunk. When I come from East London, if you're a Christian and you drink, you are extremely liberal. It was like, are you even saved? Right? Because you just never saw a healthy culture of drinking. You just weren't exposed to that in the church. And then I came to Cape Town and UCAS. Oh, jeez. Right? There was like more alcohol at one of the bars that I went to than there was Coke, and that was different. (laughs) Uh, And and I mean Coca Cola, right? But here's the thing I haven't been to a single Christian bride or party in this city where I've seen Christians get drunk. And that's been a blessing to me. I'm like, wow, you can actually have a beer and a glass of wine and not get drunk. He's like it, right? That was different, and that was a blessing for me, right? But you do it unto the Lord, the person who, who drinks goes, wow, God, thank you for this fermented froth grape. You know, that's really good. Like, I really enjoy this. This is great. Thank you, thank you for this very ice cold beer. That's refreshing after my game of golf what if that thank you so much on this hot day it's so so really refreshing to drink this i really appreciate thank you that you made it god give me the grace to be obedient to you not to get drunk on this stuff let me just enjoy it for what it is and be responsible the person who doesn't drink just goes god i don't want to drink for your glory it's all unto the glory of god that's what paul's getting at so 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 just remember that god accepts and he's pleased with both of you and This is a very rare teaching in Scripture. I don't think many people really consider this, but it's one of those only Scriptures where the Bible allows you to make up your own mind and disagree on issues that are clearly taught in the Scripture. For example, the whole drinking issue. It's clear in Scripture that it's okay for a Christian to have something to drink that contains alcohol. However, if you believe it's not okay, then guess what? It's not okay. And that's okay. Right? It's okay. As long as your partaking is partaking for the glory of God or your abstaining is abstaining for the glory of God, it's okay. Just don't try and make somebody else conform to your own conviction. That's where the problem comes in. So in conversation, if someone says, hey, I really don't believe Christians should be drinking, your encouragement to them should be, yeah, then you shouldn't drink, but." And you should go with your conscience, 100%. I'm going to back you in that. If anybody tunes you for that, I'm going to stick up for you and go, just leave them alone, right? Just leave them. That's great. That's unto the Lord. Awesome. And right? if somebody says, hey, I just feel like I need to go to church on a Sunday. I just, I can't do church on a Wednesday. Sunday is more important to me. Sunday is like a really special day. Something about Sunday It just feels more holy, Right? Guess when you need to go to church? Your encouragement then to them should be, well, then you shouldn't go to that church that meets on a Wednesday night because you're going against your conscience. Go to church on Sunday. And to the brother who wants to go to church on Monday, bless you, go. Go to church on a Monday. If Monday is a good day, if all the days are the same to you, go. Our encouragement should be, go. Right, that's what should happen. Just an interesting side note, verse five is, is written very generically. Paul's speaking about, you know, if one if a brother regards one day better than the next, you're like, which day? Which day? Which day does he think is better than, than the next? It doesn't really matter. but the, the point is he regards one as better than the next. But if one abstains, well, why is he abstaining? What's, well, what's the reason for his abstention? Well, it doesn't really matter. He's choosing to abstain. The point is, if you choose to or not choose to, as long as it's unto the Lord, it's okay. In verses 9 to 12, Paul pretty much drives this one point home. Don't try and become the mediator between someone else and God on these issues. Just let it be before the Lord. And so we're going to jump to verse 13 quickly. He says, this, Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put a stumbling block or an obstacle in the way of your brother or sister. In other words, instead of thinking, I have problems with you and your convictions and the way you are, and I'm going to change you. Your thinking should rather be, how do I bless you and help you with your convictions and what you believe and how you are? How do I best love you? It's a totally different attitude. The stumbling block that Paul's speaking about would would be me trying to force or coerce or encourage change in a brother or sister whose conscience won't allow them to do something you're actually free to do. It'll be like me going to a party and having a glass of wine and seeing a brother or sister who doesn't want to, and I'll be like, have a sip. It's good. Have a drink. You know? Or, hey, come, we're going to go out for supper. Where are we going? Cattle barren. Right? But I don't eat meat. Oh, you will after tonight. Right? <laughs> like, like, that could be putting a stumbling block. In somebody's way. That's what Paul's speaking about. Come on, let's go get a tattoo. It's just ink. Right? And what's interesting here is he starts to give more commands and more restrictions to the stronger brother and the stronger sister. So the weaker person is just told, don't judge. There's far more limitations and, and far more uh, exhortation given to the stronger brother. That's what Paul says. I am convinced being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person, it's unclean. And what Paul's done is he's associated himself with the strong. He's saying, hey, there's nothing unclean. I'm fully convinced in Jesus that nothing inherently is unclean. You know? Opium, heroin, it's not unclean. You go to hospital, you get given it for pain. I had torn what, what nots inside my rib and I was given some really strong painkillers. Thank you, Jesus. Right? It was an opioid-based painkiller. Come on. Alright? It really helped me. The problem is when you go to the back alleys of Cape Town and you see somebody abusing heroin and destroying their life, then it becomes a problem. Opium's not the problem. Heroin's not the problem. People are a problem. And so Paul's going, nothing is inherently sinful. It's what we do with it. That's the issue. I'm convinced that there's nothing wrong. But if someone says it's unclean and they feel like it's unclean, then it's unclean. Don't push them, don't put a stumbling block in front of them. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then it's unclean. If they come up to you and they say to you, hey, why do you believe what you believe? That's a different story. Then you can gently take them to the scriptures and go, listen, this is why I believe what I believe. What do you think about that? And if someone's like, oh, wow, geez, I never really thought about it like that. Okay. Wow, actually, I am freeing the Lord to do that. That's great. When they receive revelation from the Spirit, that's awesome. But if they still go, hmm, yeah, I can see it, but I just don't feel it. It shouldn't be okay. Well, let's do some more intense study together. It should be okay, cool. All right, that's what it should be. In fact, you are strong in your faith. That's a blessing. If you're weak in your faith, it doesn't mean you're not blessed. Sometimes it can be a huge blessing. Instead of trying to change your brother or sister, just let it be. You will avoid all this stupid arguing. Paul says, To the stronger, if your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. You're no longer acting in love. says this to the stronger brother and to the stronger sister. Do not, by your eating, destroy someone for whom Christ has died. It is better, he says in verse 21, not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. Why does God desire that attitude from the strong? Because love trumps your liberty. Love trumps your liberty and your freedom in Christ. In other words, Paul is saying this to the stronger person. If what you're doing is causing somebody to stumble, don't disfellowship and remove yourself from them or not invite them to a bride. Get some perspective and give up your freedom because I love you. See, the thing is, I don't invite you to my bride because you don't drink. And I'm going to feel awkward around you because I want to drink and I'm not willing to give it up. That causes distance and animosity and there's no relationship that can be built. Instead, what I should do is, I'm going to invite you around and I'm just not going to have alcohol. Is is my drinking wine that important to me that I won't have you around and build a relationship with you? Get some perspective. Give it up. See, the strong tend to live in this ideal world where they think everybody eventually is going to catch up to where they are. And I'm just going to unhook you from the fellowship train if you're not as free as me. All right? And Jesus is saying, just get some perspective here. Is your Christian liberty and freedom more important than this person and the love that you have for them and supposed to be showing towards them the relationship that you can possibly have? I died for them. But I gave up my freedom. I gave up heaven and I died for this brother or sister that you're meant to love. Is your Christian liberty more important? That's what he's saying to the strong. The least you can do is give up your right to certain liberties for the sake of the weaker brother or sister. That's what Paul is saying. It's also possible that you destroy a brother or sister because of your abuse of freedom. Do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. Now what he doesn't mean is that you're directly responsible for their destruction, but you play a huge role in that. And we're going to get into this in Hebrews. I'm just going to put it out there. You can talk to me afterwards. I totally believe that you can lose your salvation. Right? And I'll get there biblically and we can talk about it afterwards. And I think Paul is speaking about that as well. I think if you try and dance around this thing and make it mean what it doesn't mean, you're going to end up confusing people. Right? But here's how I think Paul gets there. Right? You end up destroying a brother or sister when you put a stumbling block in their way because you help them to sear their conscience. You help them to sin against the Lord. What for you might not be a sin issue, for them is a sin issue. And when you try and convince them otherwise and they step into it, guess what? It's not that they're free, they're sinning. You see their conscience. In verse 23, Paul says, whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat because their eating is not from faith. And everything that does not come from faith is sin. You see, the conscience has this ability to make What is not unclean, unclean. The conscience has the ability to take what is clean and make it unclean. But it doesn't go the other way around. Your conscience can't make what is unclean, clean. Does it make sense? But for the weaker brother or sister, something that's clean is unclean. And if they engage in it against their conscience, if they don't have enough faith for it, they're sinning. Regardless of whether the Bible says it's okay for them to do it. And as a stronger person, you can lead somebody into a place where they're constantly sinning. And then what happens is, your conscience becomes duller. You sear your conscience, and then it becomes easier to step into the next thing, and the next thing, and the next thing. And then eventually, this person is stepping into a whole bunch of Christian liberty issues or areas that they never stepped into before. And it looks great. It's like, wow, they've reached maturity. They're strong. But actually, what they're doing is they're doing what they're doing because their conscience is seared, and they're sinning against the Lord. It's not in faith. And then one thing leads to the next Least the next, and because you've seared your conscience, it becomes possible for you to reach a place where ultimately you actually walk away from the Lord. So, what Paul is saying here, well, don't destroy your brother. What he's saying is this don't put them on a path of destruction by enabling them to sear their conscience. It's very possible that your good intent to try and bring someone into greater freedom can actually lead them into greater bondage and possibly even eternal death. So stop it. Stop trying to change him. Finally, verses 16 to 18, we're going to end with this. Paul says this. The way that you avoid unnecessary conflict is to just in your own life, keep the first things first. Keep the first things, the first things. The most important things, the most important things. It says, therefore, do not let what you know is good to be spoken of as evil. What he means is your Christian liberty. Don't, don't flaunt your Christian liberty in such a way that someone says, yes, that's terrible, that's wicked. Right? For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. What Paul is saying is that the kingdom of God and the pursuit of the kingdom is the most important thing. The most important thing in your life is not to try and teach somebody why it's okay to use the word Easter. The most important thing in your life is not to try and convince somebody why using Easter is wrong. The most important thing in your life is not to try and convince somebody that they can have a beer or they can't have a beer or they can eat meat or they can't eat meat or get it at you and on and on and on and on and on and on. It's not to disfellowship and to argue about silly things like that. The most important thing is to pursue unity, to pursue peace and joy in the Lord, and to pursue the righteousness of Jesus in the kingdom of God. That is the most important thing. <laughs> when we treat our own personal convictions as so important, more important than pursuing the kingdom of God, I have this really cool expression, we end up like people on the deck of the titanic trying to organize the chairs and make it look nice when it arrives at its destination right? because if you know your history it never got there right like it sank it sank bad okay? it doesn't matter what the deck chairs look like it doesn't matter how much gold trimming there was it doesn't matter how nice it was it sank and people died are you gonna spend your life trying to Metaphorically organize the deck chairs of the Titanic, you're gonna get nowhere. And that is like arguing over silly things like whether you can or can't drink, whether you should or shouldn't get a tattoo. These are Christian liberty issues, let them go. Right, let them go. Instead, because of the gospel, our righteous standing before God should cause us to pursue righteousness with God and with others. Because of the gospel, we have peace with God, and the gospel should cause us to pursue peace with God and others. Because of the gospel, we've got a joy that comes from knowing our salvation in the gospel and through Jesus. And we should pursue that joy with others and with the Lord. That's the most important thing in life. And when we do that right, when we concern ourselves with God and the love of other people, and we stop judging them and looking down on them, we start to be Jesus for the world. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I just want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you that your word is truth. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would be men and women, brothers and sisters in the Lord, unified, reconciled, and overflowing with the Spirit. Lord, despite the differences we may have on open-handed issues, cause us to love one another deeply. Protect the unity of this church. Protect the unity of your church, Lord. And may we be people who, in truth and in love and in the power of the Spirit, celebrate one another, encourage one another in our convictions in these areas, and love you wholeheartedly in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and let's worship together.